My fellow pilgrims, that's a good introduction to what we're going to look at this morning. I want to draw your attention to a Bible passage that you probably will never see on a Christmas card or on an email signature, a passage that might even, apart from what we just saw in Psalm 90, require a trigger warning. But it is God's word. Its message is a little challenging. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. As you turn there, let me just say my own interest in this passage arises from a course that we taught in Uganda last month on biblical stewardship. And uh, that was at the request of Pastor George Biabagambi. Some of you have met him. Stewardship. What is stewardship? We're going to look at a slice of that. But let me just explain what stewardship is. So your 17-year-old daughter has just come home from her driver's test, and she passed. Hallelujah. So you give her your car keys and your credit card and a grocery list. And you say, okay, now go fill the car with gas. And then go to the grocery store and buy everything on the list. And on your way home, stop at the pizza place because I've ordered pizza for dinner. You can pick it up. Your 17-year-old daughter is acting as your steward, stewardship. She's using your car and your credit card to do things on your behalf that you assigned her to do. And as pilgrims, in the sense of Psalm 90, we also are stewards in everything we do. Did you, did you catch that in the prayer from Charles Spurgeon? The very breath we take is a gift from God, depends on his sustaining power. God owns literally everything, the entire universe and everything in it. Pastor Steve expressed that last week when he looked at 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the Lord Jesus, though he was rich, as the second person of the Trinity, he owns everything, the universe, us. Everything we have, our minds, our bodies, our gifts and abilities, including, for our purposes today, the money in our bank accounts belongs to God. And God has entrusted that to us to use for his glory. And he teaches us in his word what that looks like, and his word has warnings, consequences if we misuse what he has entrusted to us. Your 17-year-old might take the car on a joyride to the King of Prussia Mall and use your credit card to go on a shopping spree. No 17-year-old here would do that. Well, Failure and stewardship has consequences. And so keep that in mind as we turn to God's word. We are not owners. We are stewards of all that we have. And so turn with me to Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. Hear God's word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, children of Jacob, you are not consumed. 
from the days of your fathers. You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. How shall we return? Will man rob God? But you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. So you see in this passage here in Malachi 3, God responds to the stewardship failure of his people. That is, their willful neglect to give him the tithes and offerings that he is due and we see that this happened during very hard economic times. I, George asked me to preach this at his church in Uganda, and he said 60% of the people in that congregation are subsistence farmers. And he said, I want you to preach that. They're in hard times. And God says that times are hard precisely because they are not being generous. And God assured them if they repent and become generous toward him, he will improve their situation and prosper them again. And then he he actually promises much, much more than that, as we'll see later. That's it in a nutshell. Okay, trigger warning taken, yes? Okay. Let's unpack this a little bit. So it begins with an admonition. God says in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Not long before this, Israel returned from exile in Judah. Why were they in exile? Exile in Babylon. Why were they in exile? Because for centuries, they had chased other gods. They had violated the first commandment. And therefore, God sent them into exile. And yet... God has preserved them as a nation. He has not wiped them off of the face of the earth. Because, as God told Moses in Exodus 34, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And God does not change in that. Therefore, he says, you have not been consumed by me. And yet, and yet, they are at a time of desperate need for revival. Remarkably, after Israel returned from Babylon until the time when Christ came, they never chased other gods. But that's not the only thing that matters. Here, their problem is that their religion was purely external. They were, they were going through the motions of worship, but their hearts were not in it. 
There was no heart religion, no heart for God. It was back to the days of Isaiah and Isaiah 29. Isaiah writes, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's the pattern that has returned. And so God says in verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God graciously calls them to repent. He doesn't pour his wrath on them. He never desires to cast off his people, no matter how severe their sin. He always is eager to have them back. They say to him, but you ask, how shall we return? What's the problem? We have no need to return. What could we possibly have done wrong? They were pure in their own eyes. They did not see need of any repentance. And in verse 8, God points his finger onto the problem. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Literally, he says, dare a man rob or cheat God? Yet you rob me. Now, think about it. I I have a friend who was a pastor, and he knew somebody, and he tells me this is absolutely true. He knew a pastor who needed money, and so decided to rob a bank. He robbed the bank successfully, got his money, continued to work as a pastor, needed money again, robbed another bank. He did this several times before he was caught, but he was caught. Now, did he get away with it? Of course not. Can you rob God? It helps to remember Genesis 3. Remember In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, what did they do next? Well, they, first of all, ooh, we're we're naked, we're exposed, let's cover up. So they covered up fig trees. And then God comes walking in their garden, what do they do? They hide. Can you hide from God? No. He always knows where you are. Sin makes us stupid. It makes us do dumb things. Here, God says, you're robbing me. Can, can a man rob God and get away with it? No, of course not. But God says, you're robbing me. How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. In Leviticus 27.30, God says to Israel, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Under the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, in fact, the Jew gave three different tithes. The first was the tithe of all the produce and all the Flocks and cattle, and that tithe supported the temple worship and and those who served in the temple. Then there was something called that we call a festival tithe. It was a tithe of the nine-tenths that remained after the first tithe, and this is a great tithe. I wish we still had this. It was a tithe that you took to an annual celebration of the whole people, and there you spent it on a big celebration before God. And it is a provision in Deuteronomy that says if you, 
if it's too far away for you to take your tithe of produce and cattle, you can turn it into cash and carry it there, and then you can buy everything you need for you and your family to celebrate. We don't have that tithe anymore because we don't have a central place, but that's kind of a nice tithe, isn't it? Take 10% of your income and squander it in a party. And then the third tithe was the charity tithe. It was collected every three years, and it was to support the poor, the strangers, the orphans, and the widows. And so over a three-year period in the Old Testament Jewish law, the Jew gave away about 23% of his income. He gave corn and oil and wine and livestock and money, and moreover, it was to be the best of their produce. Not the leftovers, but it was the first fruits, it's called. God's tenth was always the first and the best. And then there were the offerings. Malachi calls them here contributions. These were voluntary gifts given above and beyond the tithe to however your heart led you to give. So, for example, when the tabernacle was built in the wilderness, well, people made offerings to build the tabernacle. When the temple was built, people gave contributions to build the temple. These were voluntary offerings. But in Malachi 3, none of this is happening the way it's supposed to. The people not only failed to give their offerings, they failed to give tithes, or they gave only a part of the tithe, not the whole tithe, or they, or they gave the leftovers instead of the first fruits because times were hard. Okay, let's shift gears now and think about us. How does this apply to us? If you're a good student of the Bible, you will remember that the New Testament hardly ever mentions anything about tithing. And we might conclude from this that in the New Testament, the tithe is therefore gone. It's done away with, and we no longer have the tithe because we are no longer longer under law, but under grace. But if you're a careful student of the Bible, you'll also find other things in the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis 4, you have Cain and Abel. There's no recollection, no record of any instructions from God about giving offerings after the fall, but you have Cain and Abel, and they both bring offerings of their, the fruit of their labor. Cain brings some of the fruit of the field. Abel brings the first fruits of his crops, of his animals. But why do they bring an offering in the first place? What's the point? Well, the Bible doesn't say so, but it seems natural for them to bring offerings to God because he's God. I mean, isn't, if you understand who God is, don't you want to, don't you want to bring something to him? They realize they're stewards, not owners, and that above all, God is worthy of our offerings. And then you read on in Genesis 14, and Abraham gives a tithe to someone named Melchizedek. 
after God granted them success in rescuing Lot from a group of marauding kings. And then Jacob, when he flees because Esau has promised to kill him, and he meets God at Bethel, and God reiterates his promise to him, what does he do? He says, one-tenth of all I have I give to you, God. Jacob, who are you going to give it to? Well, he'd probably say, well, don't bother me with trifles. I want to give an offering to God. We'll, we'll figure it out later. You know, so this just springs from who God is. Um, and tithing is rooted in the principle that comes way before Moses, that God is our maker and keeper. He's the owner of everything that is. He is glorious, and he's worthy of honor. And we dare not come before him with empty hands. But as good stewards of all that he's given to us, we, we want to return to him something to be generous toward him. My wife Priscilla follows on Instagram very few people, but one person she follows is the king of Bhutan. Uh, Bhutan is a small country in the Himalayas between India and China, population about 800,000, and from all the pictures, it's just a marvelous place. And Priscilla and I secretly, well, less secretly now, we, we hope to go there someday. So she follows the king of Bhutan on Instagram. Now, suppose the king of Bhutan came to Elverson and came to our house. Would we just offer him a glass of Elverson public water? No. Be crazy. No, we would pull out all the stops. We'd, we'd put a feast on for him with all the delicacies of Lancaster County, Lebanon bologna and, and apple dumplings and, and, and whoopie pies, you know? I mean... <laughs> Because he's the king of Bhutan, and he's come to our house. Well, we have come here this morning, and who is here with us? Not the king of Bhutan. The God of the universe. Do we want to offer him a glass of water? No. You don't come before God with empty hands. You, you come before God rejoicing because everything you have is from his bounty anyway. And you want to celebrate that with him. Well, that, that's what's behind. That's the principle behind the tithe. God is ma- exceedingly majestic and holy and glorious and mighty of such splendor that if we actually saw him, as saying Isaiah, we would be undone. David has said we would be prostrate on the ground, licking the dust before this God. Dare we come before him empty-handed? Of course not. He has given us the world to live in with all his good gifts, and we honor him by being generous to him in return giving back a portion of what he has given to us. And, and in his word, he tells us that portion is not 95%. He says, give me 10%. Wow, what a generous God he is. 
And so when tithing is merely, merely, rarely mentioned in the New Testament, we should conclude that it's simply carried over from the Old Testament. It's not, nothing in the New Testament says it's not there anymore. In fact, Jesus had a prime occasion to overthrow the tithe once. He was speaking to the Pharisees, pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. And in Luke eleven forty two, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, that was a prime opportunity for him to say to the Pharisees, Oh, stop tithing on minuscule things like mint and herbs and things like that. But he didn't say that. He didn't overturn the tithe. He just said, These, that is the tithe, you ought to have done, he says. The tithe continues without neglecting the justice and the love of God. You see what he says? Jesus upholds the principle of the tithe, even tithing of mint and herbs. And so the principle of the tithe and of offerings that we see in the Old Testament and in Malachi 3 holds for the New Testament as well. As it was true throughout the Old Testament, of course, it's true in the New Testament, God is not primarily after your money. He's after your heart. But if he doesn't have your money, he doesn't have your heart either. Amen? Okay. Getting back to Malachi 3 in verse 9, God continues, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Because of their failure to give, God brought a curse on their land, on their nation, their religions, their homes, their families, their businesses. In, in Haggai 6, not the same time period, but a similar thing is described. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And the one who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. That's the experience that the people of Malachi are having. Their excuse for not giving was that times were hard. I think we all resonate with that. We know what that's like. God turns it around. He says, why are you having hard times? You're having hard times because you're not being faithful stewards of my good gifts. You're not giving what I ask you to give. And even today, we might say, but God, I have to take care of my family first. God says, be generous to me, and I'll take care of your family. How's that? The failure to be generous, to be good stewards, is what brought them into poverty. And maybe we, too, suffer financially because we do not give God his due. And we don't give him his due because he doesn't have our hearts. In verse 10, he tells them what to do. He says, 
Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. A storehouse, that's an interesting idea. The, the tithes and offerings were collected and stored in the storehouse, and from there they were distributed. That was the Old Testament pattern. And we see that pattern in the New Testament as well. In Acts 4, the early church, people brought, you know, you had, you had this thousands of people who were in Jerusalem, and they had become new believers, and they stayed there. They only intended to stay a short time. Now they're all staying together. You have to feed and clothe and house them. And so everyone brought their, their resources together, and then the whole company was supported from the resources pulled together. In Philippians 4, Paul's missionary work is likewise supported by pulling the resources of the church in Philippi together, and then they send a gift to him so that he can carry on his ministry work. We might say that the New Testament equivalent of the storehouse is the church in the New Testament. It makes sense that our primary giving as Christians, our tithe, should go where our families are fed and nurtured in Christ, and that's the local church. Bring food into my house. Which brings us to God's declaration in verse 10. And thereby, God says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God gives them a challenge. Test me. Be generous to me, and I will meet every need you have. If you repent, give me your heart. Out of the overflow of that, give me the tithes and offerings. See if I won't act to give to meet all your needs. Now, prosperity preachers, prosperity gospel preachers love this text. Here's what they say it means. If you give and give again, make your check out to Wendell Stultzus Incorporated. God will multiply what you give and he will give it back to you many times over. Hallelujah. Right? In Africa, that runs rampant. In America, too. Turn on the TV. You'll see them. Is that what God's saying? What does God mean? Well, consider this. This is the end of the Old Testament. After Malachi, after the prophecy of Malachi, there will be 400 years when God will no longer give any new revelation through any of the prophets until that moment in Luke where God speaks to Zechariah when he's in the temple, and tells him he's going to have a son and to name him John. And look closely at this promise. God says, I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now think about that. Would this promise be fulfilled with a bumper crop in 2024? Or maybe 10 bumper crops in a row? Would this promise be fulfilled with 
10 years of double-digit GDP growth. Would that fulfill this promise? I don't think about this. When the economy is at its best, when your farm and your business are booming, when you're getting massive raises one after another by your employer and, and you're flush with cash, would you say that you have received a blessing such that there is no more need? Do you not, even in the best of times, in the most prosperous of times, do you not come home for work, from work and, and there's your spouse and, and there are your kids and, and, and you still have to deal with that anger that arises in you when the children do that? Does having a lot of money make your marriage better? Ask someone who's won the lottery. A large percentage of them, their marriages fall apart. And is there not still the temptation of the screen? Do you not still have to deal with you? No matter how much money you have. You see, the promise of blessing until there is no more need is not fulfilled simply with stuff and material goods. But the very next thing on God's calendar is the coming of Christ. So here's what God's saying. If you don't understand, if you don't have a heart for God, if you don't have faith in me that makes you generous toward me, if you, give, if you fail to give tithes and offerings because you think little of God and his coming of salvation, the coming of Christ will mean nothing to you. But those who look to him in faith, expressed in faithful giving, will receive everything they look for in the coming of Christ. Those who repent here in Malachi and heed God's warnings. Those who find God glorious and and worthy of their money and their tithes and their offerings and, and long for his salvation. They will have that salvation come in Christ. These are the kind of people that Steve talked about in Hebrews 11. Though commended for their faith, they did not yet receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. But if they loved God and longed for his salvation, such that it overflowed in them in generosity toward God, God would send something that will meet their every need. They will find Christ beautiful. I think of, I think of Simeon, you know, when Simeon was in the temple and Jesus was brought in, he was the baby Jesus. And Simeon says, oh, now I can depart in peace. My eyes have seen the salvation of God. She said, well, wait a minute, Simeon. Wait, 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 wait. You, don't, you haven't seen his death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. How can you say that? It was enough for Simeon. Now the Savior has come and all my needs are going to be met. That's the kind of faith that... God is calling the people in Malachi too. You see, God is not after their money. He's after their hearts. 
And if he has their hearts, they will give him their money as well. And the same is true for us. In chapter verse 11, God goes on, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. You see, if they, if they faithfully give tithes and offerings, God says, I'll protect. I'll protect you. I'll protect your crops from disease and frost and insects. Now, how, how does that apply? Well, you know, the Christian who is a faithful steward of God's good gifts finds God worthy of honor and praise and of his tithes and contributions will see God meet their needs in, in unexpected ways sometimes. Shoes will last longer. Clothes won't wear out. Cars will break down less. Things will be purchased cheaper. That's, that's just... It's just part of what God does. God protects his own who are obedient to him. Are you ready to test him and trust him in the area of giving? We do not give in order to get more. We give in order to honor God and be faithful to him. And he promises to show himself faithful. And then in verse 12, he goes on. Then the nations will call you blessed. You will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You see, if they will give tithes and offerings, the people around them, the nations around them will see and be amazed. Boy, those people have a God who really looks out for them. God and man will delight in Israel's obedience. obedience. And that applies to the church as well. If every believer faithfully joined themselves to a local church and there were faithfully taught the glory and the majesty and the worth of God and the beauty of what God's done in Christ so that they gave generously as their hearts desired and as they were committed to it, the world would take notice and would see in the church a delightful land. Do you know that hymn, Glorious Things of the Spoken? That hymn sticks with me because the tune is the German national anthem and I grew up in Germany. Do you know the last line of that hymn? Think about it. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Wow. Do you believe that? If we believe that, if we know those solid joys and lasting treasure, the people around us will notice it. They can't help but miss it. Amen. So let me conclude with just some practical applications. Um, Every Christian should strive to be obedient, to give a tithe, to give a tenth of their income. And it should be the first fruits to the Lord before paying other bills. Trigger warning, remember? We should give the first fruits to the Lord, and it takes faith to believe that God will take care of us if we will do that. But as Hebrews 11 says, it's only a life of faith that pleases God. Yes, it will cramp your lifestyle. 
Your home, your car, your clothes will not be as flashy as the people who make the same amount of money but don't tithe. That's just the way it is. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Is God worth it? What if you're not there yet? What if we haven't tithed for ages? Well, you know, it takes planning and organization to tithe. It takes budgeting. Uh, Budgeting is just part of good stewardship of the things that God gives us. But if you're not there yet, and you know that God is glorious and worthy, and you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty, might be rich in Christ, might have the blessings that we have no more need. Give something. If you're married, agree with your spouse and take baby steps. Start by giving 1%. And then six months later, say, can we go to 3%? And and then 5%. Can we get to 10%? Arrange your life so that you can do that Because God is worthy of it. And dwell on God's grace to you. Don't dwell on the money. And you'll find that you will happily make the sacrifice. But don't give emotionally. Don't, uh, when I was a pastor, we had the offering in the worship service after the sermon. That's dangerous. You know, well, I like that sermon, I'll give extra. Oh, I don't like that sermon. I'm not giving anything this week. You know, um, don't give emotionally. Give, give biblically. Give systematically. Simply out of obedience. Paul calls it in Romans the obedience of faith. I love that phrase. And then, as God prospers you and you're able, find find other things to give to. Offerings are gifts over and above the tithe. You may give your offerings to the church. You may give them anywhere you choose. I mean, do your homework. There's a lot of shysters out there, so beware. But, but find something, a cause or a ministry that you can get excited about and, and do some research and find out and then, and then give to it, but then also give offerings to it, but then also add your prayers to it. Become holistically, if you will, involved in, in whatever you support. And giving should flow from obedience, from a heart of joy. God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Those passages in 2 Corinthians, they're about an offering, not the tithe. They're about an offering that Paul is proposing for the church in Jerusalem. And God loves a cheerful giver. We will experience joy in giving as we are able. Now, like most other things in life, there are times when you'll say, well, I don't feel that immediate joy. In fact, boy, I could really use that money for something else. Those times will happen. That's okay. But over a lifetime, you will learn. You will find joy in giving. You know, we use so many of our resources on ourselves, don't we? Yeah, yeah we do. Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, things that do not pass away. How much money have you spent this week on things that pass away? That's a sad thing. Learn to give generously, even sacrificially, for God's work. Someone once said, 
Don't give until it hurts. Give a little more until it feels good. That's that's good advice. All giving, all giving, from 1% to Letourneau, R.G. Letourneau gave 90%. He had so much, you know, he could afford it. But all of that is by faith. It's sacrificial. And it is from a willing heart that loves God more than the things of this world. Isn't that where the battle is, brothers and sisters? What do we love the most? And if God does, does have your heart, oh, don't worry. He'll lead you to use your money for the very best things, both the money that you give away and the money that you keep and use for life. God promised through Malachi to open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. Malachi's readers looked forward to that. They, they looked forward to the fulfillment of all the promises. We look back on it. Christ has come. Ephesians 1.3 says he has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you believe that? God has been exceedingly generous to us in Christ. He, God doesn't need your money, but, oh, he's, he's such a glorious God that he has determined that he's going to use our money for the furtherance of his kingdom in the world. He uses us. He enlists us into his kingdom service, and he uses us, including our resources, to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that a glorious thing? We're blessed beyond measure in Christ. Let us respond generously to him. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God. We are blessed beyond measure. We give you all glory and honor and pray that you will so work in our hearts, Father, that we become good stewards of everything, every good gift that you have given to us, including, Father, that little sliver of our stewardship that involves our giving. Glorify yourself in us to that end, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to continue worship in the, with the Lord's Supper. Again, keep in mind how generous God has been to us. This is what is pictured for us here. I want to turn to Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. Matthew writes, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine 
until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So, the Lord's Supper looks back to where Jesus' body was broken, his blood shed for us. And it looks forward. We will eat and drink this again with him in his kingdom. Wow. What's happening in that kingdom now? Let me just read a snippet from Revelation 5. Revelation 5 describes what is happening in heaven even now. We had this great throng of people. I looked and heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what's happening right now in heaven. Did you catch that? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth. Hmm. He is worthy to receive power and wealth. My wealth, your wealth, because he was slain in wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. If you're a believer today, if you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior and have been baptized, we invite you to partake with us and look forward to that day when we will join those myriads and myriads. What is a myriad? I'm not sure. Myriads and myriads around the throne giving praise to Christ. If you're not yet a believer, don't worry about your money. We don't want your money. God doesn't either. He wants your heart. Give him your heart. See what we're doing today. See what Christ has done. Hear this. He's calling you even now. He's not asking you for your money. He wants your heart. Will you give it to him? But if you're not a believer, please don't partake. He asks you not to. It's a family meal. But he does call you. says, come. Come to this family. Come to me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to bring us to you. Worthy is the lamb who, though he was rich, beyond all measure, the hymn says, all for love's sake, became poor to bring us to you. We are blessed beyond measure, Father. Encourage us, feed us in this blessing that you say will be until we have no more need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples. As I minister in his name, give it to you.
Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, 
This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Our Lord then also took the cup and gave it to his disciples. We're going to sing a hymn. It's going to reference a cup of kindness. This is the true cup of kindness, the sacrifice of Christ's blood to wash away our sins.
said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for remission of sins. Drink of it. Oh, our God and our Father, we give you praise and honor. We are not yet at a place where we have no more need. But in Christ, through his death and resurrection, and through his now reigning at your right hand as King of kings and Lord of lords over all, oh, Lord, we can taste it. We can sense it. We know it's coming. We long for it, Father. Grant us to live in the time between now and then, in the 70 years or by gift of strength, 80, that you give us as your faithful and good stewards. All praise to you, all glory be to Christ. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.